Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> adult language, nudity, and adult content. Well, I don't know about the nudity, but good evening, everyone, and welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, and thank you for joining us for the 119th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. We will be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show for the next hour at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not any kind of official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting of regulatory bodies. All right. Now, a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc.
As always, thank you very much for that. And if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. Okay, so uh, those folks who are uh, <clears throat> Stones devotees will recognize that as being uh, the opening and bits and pieces of the Midnight Rambler, which is off of uh, Let It Bleed. I think it's the first song on the second side. Uh, it's also a very well-known live uh, piece they do in concert a lot. And since we're going to be talking about uh, all sorts of nasty people, including serial killers, rapists, and other fun folks, I thought it would be a uh, very appropriate uh, intro music for this evening's topic. <laughs> it's kind of hard to know how to describe people like that, but yes, thank you very much for that. So... As Dr. Mathis has mentioned, and as I am correcting a typo where I didn't change the topic in this sentence, I'm fixing that for you guys, um, tonight's episode is entitled Jack the Ripper, with apologies to Motorhead, our fascination with antisocials, which we will discuss in a moment. So before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis. If you would, sir. Well, once again, since we're talking about this, I thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to do. I, I suspect that most of our readers this is, and listeners, this is not something they're up on. And uh, probably if I weren't uh, a guy that does a lot of forensic work, I probably wouldn't be up on this either. But being a musician person and a forensic person, this just uh, sort of uh, was a topic that was uh, kind of near and dear to both of my hearts. So I thought tonight I would talk about serial killers and the music they liked. <laughs> so, oh, that's going to be very. <laughs> uh -huh, it's going to be good. So we'll start off with uh, someone close to home for me, Wayne Williams, uh, who was a music producer and promoter in Atlanta who uh, was convicted of the murder of two adults and is considered to be the uh, child murderer of Atlanta of the African-Americans from uh, 79 to 81. And his favorite music people that he liked were B.B. King, ZZ Hill, Bobby Blue Bland, and Tyrone Davis, which is going to be interesting because a lot of people associate heavy metal with serial killers. And you're going to see that while that's true in a couple of cases, that's definitely not the case in a lot of these people. Uh, so Arthur Sharcross, uh, the Janice River Killer, this is a very nasty individual. So if you don't know anything about him, I will just suffice to say that uh, he killed a lot of uh, folks and did some very Hannibal Lecter-esque things with various body parts. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and oh, his joy. favorite, uh -huh, his favorite, uh, if you've ever seen the interviews with him, he is a really funky boy. Uh, his favorite artist was an artist called Gigi Allen, who was described oh, as... Yep. I know the them. Most, oh, yep. Jesus. Well, you have my deepest sympathies. Thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> not personally, but I know of him and almost went to one of yeah, his well, concerts. Yeah, well, that's even better that you don't know him because he was described as the, quote, 
most spectacular degenerate in rock and roll history. <laughs> End quote. Yep, that's our. Yeah, and he was a guy who was often known for eating his own fecal material and throwing it in the audience during performances. Mm-hmm. Okay, then. That's a fact. Talk about That's him. a fact. Yeah, talk about having a shitty night. Right. Okay. So, oh, um, <laughs> oh God, here we go. Well, so he's David, not with us anymore, David, and that's part of the reason. So. <laughs> yeah. So David Berkowitz, uh, most people know that person as the quote-unquote son of Sam, was yep. a Hall and Oates person, and his oh, favorite song that he, I know, can you believe that? Whose favorite song was the motivation for his crimes was Rich Girl. Oh, no. Because <laughs> you've gone to <gasps> <laughs> Oh. Yeah. I know. I've got, I, you can't make this shit up, okay? No, no pun intended. No, you certainly can't. <laughs> Okay. No, we're off to yelling already. We're doing something nice now. <laughs> okay, that really was no pun intended for a change. Okay, so everybody knows this next one, Charles Manson, who technically wasn't a serial killer because he, he didn't really kill anybody, but he certainly encouraged folks to be killed and mutilated and all kind of gross stuff. Um, and his favorite band was the Beatles, and his white album was his inspiration, Helter Skelter, was his delusional inspiration uh, for the, uh, you know, race war that was going to come on and all that kind of good stuff. And during the Tate LaBianca murders, the followers that, uh, you know, wrote, did things in blood on the walls, wrote Helter Skelter in their victims' blood on the walls. Uh, But the interesting thing is they added an A. Evidently, they weren't very good spellers. So they spelled it H-E-A-L-T-E-R, uh, Skelter. And I'm thinking, Helter Skelter? Okay. Well, that was kind of a bad joke for them. But anyway. Um, and Ronald Pittich, who killed his mother and then stabbed an 11-year-old boy to death in 2020, uh, 2002, uh, admitted his guilt and received a 50-year prison sentence his favorite uh, band, Metallica. His favorite song, Ronnie, off the 90s album, Load. Uh, and he said that was the song that made him commit murder. That I guess the, the Metallica made him do it or something. So, uh, most of you folks know the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, who was an avowed Satanist. Uh, I don't know how much of a BS that was or whatever, but he was an ACDC fan. So here's your first, here's your second hard rock heavy metal guy, who actually uh, got caught because one of the things that led to his capture was he left his ball cap uh, at the scene of a crime accidentally. His ACDC ball cap. <laughs> uh, he was also oh, a big Judas Priest. Yeah, I know. What a great uh, thing for ACDC, right? And the other band he liked was Judas Priest, and Judas Priest saw the Ripper. Uh, was a motivation for one of his crimes, and he actually scrawled the lyrics uh, to that song at the scene of one of his crimes. Uh, Ted Bundy was actually a talk radio guy as opposed to music, so he said he would rather listen to talk radio any day than listen to music. So I thought that was very interesting. So he really wasn't much of a music guy, but he was a talk radio guy. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, who I'm sure everyone knows, uh, you know, they killed all those folks uh, from the 70s to the 90s. Uh, in addition to being an extremely heavy drinker, uh, 
and was a huge Black Sabbath freak, uh, especially uh, their song Iron Man. So I'm thinking well, at least he had good taste in music. John Wayne Gacy, as most of you know, who had friends in crawl spaces, uh, <laughs> who uh, killed 33 victims in the 70s, uh, listed as his favorite musicians, REO Speedwagon and Elton John. He also said he really enjoyed the music of Roy Orbison, Neil Diamond, and Bob Dylan. So he had a pretty eclectic uh, music taste. Hmm. Uh, David Ray Parker, also known as, to folks as the Toy Box Killer, another very disturbed individual. Um, this is a guy who kidnapped women, uh, tortured them, raped them, uh, and did all sorts of mental brainwashing dillies before killing them and then stashing their bodies uh, throughout places in the New Mexico desert was also a metal music uh, devotee, particularly Slayer. Uh, Eileen Warnos, who most of you know, uh, was the prostitute gal who killed a bunch of her Johns, uh, just cush good, uh, was a Natalie Merchant person and loved Tiger Lily. Oh, jeez. <gasps> yeah. And, yeah. Can you believe that? And even requested Carn- uh, uh, Natalie Merchant's song Carnival to be played at her funeral. So there you have it. Uh, the Axe Man of New Orleans, who most people may or may not have heard of. This is a guy who's never been caught. Did a string of axe murders, obviously, in New Orleans. You know, go figure, right? In the early 20th century, uh, had written many of these taunting letter kind of things, a lot of the Dumber serial killers do, because that's what usually gets them caught, although in this case, this guy got away with it, or gal, they never figured out who it was. Uh, When one of the letters to the Times-Picayune newspaper, uh, he said he was going to play jazz music uh, during one of his kills. So he's a jazz music guy. Go figure in New Orleans, right? Okay, Vic Dawn Jackson, uh, a.k.a. the Angel of Death. This was a nurse who was murdering her victims in, in around the te- Texas hospital in the Code of General by injecting uh, chloride into the nervous system to paralyze them. She was a country music person, liked all sorts of country music. Uh, Luke Magnot, yeah, who uh, was a very disturbed young man who videotaped uh, himself raping, murdering, and dismembering, and then consuming a, a Chinese exchange student that he posted the video online of in 2012. And he was a Madonna person. <laughs> I guess uh, like a sturgeon. What in right? the hell? Oh, yeah. oh. I, I'm oh, telling you, there is no... Yeah, first of all, there is no accounting for taste. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oh, all, in Dahmer's all, case. All oh. and, and to my joke. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I'm on a roll and I'm not talking jelly. Um, as you can see, <laughs> our, our serial killers and cannibals and other nasty folks have all kinds of diverse music tastes. So stop blaming metal music for this, guys and gals. Uh, so the Acid King, Ricky Cazzo, uh, who was also a self-proclaimed Satanist, 
but also a junkie, and people just thought he was a junkie trying to get attention. But he was a metal music guy, also an ACDC person. After murdering uh, a friend of his, Gary Lawers, who was 17 years old at the time, while he was high on LSD, and uh, this is a gentleman who, awaiting trial, hung himself in his cell. So I guess he got tired of hanging around for trial. Okay, and finally, a a few days after attending the Strictly for the Wicked Festival, which is a music festival that features horrorcore music. That's the name of the music, which is what you might think it is. uh, That's held evidently outside of uh, Detroit. In 2009, uh, Richard uh, McCroskey, a.k.a. Psycho Sam, spelled with an S, S S-Y-K-O, Sam, bludgeoned his girlfriend to death, uh, her parents, and her little dog, too, and her friend to death with a hammer and a maul. Uh, So we have quite a number of different kinds of nasty folks doing all sorts of... uh, things that I hope none of our listeners are thinking of doing or have had done to them or anybody they know, listening to everything from ACDC to Madonna to Elton John. So uh, that's your list for this evening. And I say to everybody, if you think metal music causes people to kill folks and all this crazy stuff, then I guess you don't want to listen to Elton John or Madonna either one. (laughs) Or Natalie Merchant. (laughs) So there you go. That's my story yeah. and I'm sticking to. That is a very good point because I, I hadn't really remembered the whole blaming the music genre thing for it. And that is a very good thing to bring up because people like to go there if they don't know any better. That really has nothing to do with it. It's no, usually I, I something agree. that comes afterwards. Yeah. I, I figured you would of all people. <laughs> well, and I just thought it was interesting when I started really – you know, as I've you know, because I've studied these guys and gals for a while now, just because they fascinate me. And you know, like most of our listeners, I suspect I you know I love uh, the Hannibal Lecter series, and you know I love the Dexter series, and they're rebooting that. By the way, if you haven't seen the reboot, it's coming. Uh, New, Dexter, New Blood. I'm all excited. Uh, but you know, people, in all seriousness, and I I do love those shows, but in all seriousness, you know, you these people want to blame a myriad of things for their behaviors. And the truth is that, you know, some of these folks uh, have pretty, uh, for lack of a better term, funky brains. And, you know, it's not just one thing that causes these folks to go awry. It's a number of factors, but none of them involve what kind of music they listen to, what kind of music, uh, movies they watch, or what kind of food they eat. So, (laughs) unless it's people. So... Uh, you know, I would hasten our listeners to not make any sort of judgment on how people dress, whether they dress gothy or not, or whether they listen to metal music or not, or whether they eat, uh, you know, venison or uh, veggie burgers. It's, it, there is no unifying lifestyle factor that ties serial killers together, whether they're male or female. And that's why I brought both of them up, so folks could see the the divergence in those. Yes. Okay. So that's uh, that's pretty intense, and I'm glad we got that out there and make it clear to people that no music is not the factor; that it's completely random, really. 
as far as that yeah. goes. And I'm All sure right, that cool. the artists are not, not flattered that these folks listen to them. No, and wear their I, I actually was quite curious whether a few of those artists, especially like Paul and Oates and Natalie Merchant, for example, I'm wondering if yeah. they actually were ever told. You know, obviously it's out there because you, you, you know about it, so it, it got out somehow. But that's got to yeah. mess you up. You're kind of a mellow artist, and it's like, whoa, hi, Charles Manson really digs your stuff. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. I think I'm going to go work at an amusement park for a while or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, no doubt. Oh, my Lord. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much for that. And You're let's welcome. get some applause in there. Thank you. Always appreciating these fun little stories, even though some of them are a little gruesome, but that's okay. And just so you guys know, I put a warning on the uh, Facebook page, but we are going to get a little gruesome tonight. So that's why tonight's show is R and not PG-13. But Hmm. those of you who are willing to sit through it tonight, uh, we will be taking calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until about midnight. That's roughly 40 minutes from now. So feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All righty. Episode 119, Jack the Ripper, our fascination with antisocials. So with apologies to Motorhead uh, for whose song, Jack the Ripper, I named tonight's show. Tonight's show is a bit of a nod to Sunday's upcoming Halloween as we often like to do topics that are relevant to various upcoming holidays or special events. Prior show topics that we've done around Halloween include, pardon my hiccups, include the following. Um, Way back in episode eight, we did the psychology of horror in media. That was in November, 2016. We ended up having to reschedule it, but still in November. Um, Episode 24 Pathology Chic and Misconceptions, Part 1 in June of 2017, and that's Hollywood versions of pathologies. And Episode 25, which is Part 2, and that was in July of 2017, and that's Real Pathologies. It's not a Halloween show because we did it in the summer, but it's relevant tonight to inappropriately romanticizing certain pathologies. And this is also not a Halloween show per se, but the topic is relevant. Episode 26, The Siren's Tears, Dark Music for Dark Times in July of 2017. It was about dark music like, you know, gothy music or, you know, some industrial crossover and, you know, stuff that's really kind of dark Marilyn Manson type stuff and, you know, that sort of thing and mental health. Um, The next show that we did was a Halloween show that was on Halloween of 2018 and that was Fear of the Dark, The Psychology of Fear for Fun and then the last one we did that was relevant was two years ago um, episode 78 Knocking on Heaven's Door which is Halloween Rituals and that was on October 30th of 2019 so if you guys want to check those out there's some related conversations that are somewhat tied into tonight. So we want to discuss something fairly intense tonight. And in fact, some of our sensitive listeners will have to use their discretion as to whether or not tonight's topic is appropriate for them. You know, if you guys are worried about it, um, 
just bookmark it, come back and listen to it where you can pause if it's kind of bugging you. So we'll be discussing United States pop culture's fascination with antisocials of various types and why both in real life and in entertainment we have such a morbid fascination with the archetype. So tonight we'll be discussing what is an antisocial, old and new terms and definitions, well-known fictional and real-life antisocials in media, entertainment, and the news, what is the psychological appeal of these figures, and risks and pitfalls, and why you, why and how you should stop this behavior. And by this, I mean the fascination and the glorifying and almost hero-worship obsession that some people have with antisocials. Of course, you should obviously stop the behavior if you're an antisocial and you're killing people, but I don't think anybody that falls in that category is listening tonight, so, eh, you know. Um, Before we get started, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything you want to bring up. Nope, I'm good. I just would say that if any of our listeners know how to stop antisocials, particularly before they happen, you can make a shoot ton of money. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. And yes, that, that is one of the issues with this topic is that it, it is rather difficult to figure out how to make it stop. Um, all right. So let's go ahead and dive in. What is an antisocial? Old and new definitions and terms. So terms that have been used in the past for these behaviors are most, most of the time psychopath or sociopath. Uh, both terms of which have been folded now into ASPD, which is antisocial. Um, what is the P? I've forgotten. Personality disorder, isn't it? That is correct. It's a cluster B okay. personality disorder. That's right. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while since we talked about it. We do have a whole show on antisocial personality disorder, but it's been a while since we did it. So I've slept since then and my brain reset. <laughs> Okay, so your average lay people are largely misled, not intentionally, and confused by the term antisocial. No, it's not someone who is introverted and reclusive and hates parties. Um, You know, when I first heard this term when they were getting into switching, that's the first thing I would think of, and it was very difficult for me to make that transition. But so if you guys – this is still not only very popular in media – but it actually even happens with some mental health professionals that are not as skilled as, say, Dr. Mathis. Uh, I'm not sucking up. It's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are still professionals that use this, those terms instead of the new ones, and they've been in the DSM-5 for years. So I really don't know what to tell you about that, but that's actually one good way to measure whether your mental health professional might need to be changed, you know, if they're not keeping up with current materials. I'm not sure how helpful they're going to be to people. All right. So there's a few comments I grabbed on the internet just to kind of get a feel for the things that people are talking about. And if at any time you want to stop me and add anything, Dr. Mathis, let me know. But I do have some pauses in here to ask you things. Um, From Cora, which for Dr. Mathis, who doesn't run around on the internet the way I do, Cora is a forum for discussion website. So people get on there and they get into conversations about stuff. So there was a thread about these sorts of conversations. And a couple of comments I grabbed um, was first, and this was somebody answering the original poster. 
Um, first, the terms sociopathy and psychopathy are not currently used as diagnostic terms. The person they were responding to claimed to be a mental health professional, but eh. <laughs> they're not used as diagnostic terms by the APA and they're not listed in the DSM-5. Used uh, The book used to help clinical psychologists and psychiatrists diagnose and treat patients. The traits and behaviors associated with psychopathy and sociopathy are currently covered by the diagnostic label antisocial personality disorder. There it is. There's my abbreviation. I didn't mean to forget you. I'm sorry. <laughs> However, they continue, there are psychologists and psychiatrists who think that psychopathy is a sufficiently different, more malignant subtype of ASPD that should become a formal diagnostic label. And I'm going to pause here because I have a question for you, Dr. Mathis. Before ASPD was put in the DSM-5, wasn't psychopathy already a separate diagnosis of some kind, just not of ASPD in the past? It was a term used in the past, but it has been used in a really long time. Um, <clears throat> what happened originally is when they had an antisocial personality disorder, they had it sort of, if you will, split into two different types of antisocials, the psychopaths and the sociopaths. And the differentiating uh, criteria between the two was that the psychopaths were these sort of random folks that didn't play by any rules, that had no rhyme or reason for killing. They were just kind of like, you know, loose cannon killers, for lack of a better term. Sociopaths were socialized killers who um, subscribed to a different set of mores or principles. So, for example, a mafia hit person would be considered a sociopath because that person subscribed to the mafia rules. You don't kill kids, you don't kill women, that kind of stuff. Psychopaths have no rules. They just kill what the heck, whom the hell ever and whenever and for whatever reason. The CIA assassins would essentially be uh, sociopaths. Any of the wet boys for the CIA would be sociopaths. Uh, any of the, the cult of set killers or any of the crazy ass, you know, people who go out and kill people for a religious cause would be considered, if that's part of the fundamental, if that's part of the, the fundamental um, rules and regulations of the religion, would be considered sociopaths. All the crazy asses running around just killing people because they want to get their stuff going or whatever, or they're delusional for the very few schizophrenics that are dangerous, which is not many. Um, <clears throat> they would be the psychopaths. They'd be a lot more unpredictable and a lot more dangerous, for lack of a better term. Gotcha. And that all okay. comes about due to the work of a Canadian guy, uh, Robert Hare. Uh, and if you know anything about him, he's a really interesting guy, a really smart guy uh, who was in practice in Canada. And I forgot why he lost his job. I don't know if the clinic he was working in closed down, but he couldn't find work. And the only work that was open was in the prisons, and he'd never worked in there before. So he ended up going to these prisons with these you know, very unsavory folks. 
And if you hear the interview with him, it's hilarious. He's like, yeah, there were there were some not very nice people in there. <laughs> you know, you just kind of want to start laughing and going, yeah, no shit, Sherlock, right? But, <laughs> but he's like, and I had to figure out which one of the ones were like more not nice than others. So he's the guy that devised the hair psychopathy checklist, which has kind of become the gold standard now to diagnose somebody with antisocial personality disorder. Uh, and, and, you know, and I, so that's where the term psychopathy came from, is the work that he did with the sociopathy being sort of a, an offshoot of that, but all of them considered to be under the DSM category of antisocial personality disorder. That's actually perfect that you brought him up, because I don't know if you noticed, but the very next section of the script is going to get into his work just briefly. Because it was pretty significant, and I'm glad you flushed out the explanation. So let me go ahead to the next uh, paragraph here. Sure. Um, So there are psychologists and psychiatrists who think that psychopathy is a sufficiently different, more malignant subtype of ASPD that should become a formal diagnostic label. And this is the bulk of what a lot of his work is uh, known for. So Dr. Robert Hare, H-A-R-E, in particular has studied and written extensively about psychopathy and developed tool you mentioned, the uh, PCL, or psychopathy checklist, that defines the traits and behaviors of psychopathy in specific as a distinct psychiatric disorder. I, that I know of, he hasn't won his point yet, but he is lobbying hard to get that changed because he isn't sufficiently distinct. And um, the other comment from Quora was that psychopathic generally means without capacity. Sociopathic is a twisted capacity. Do you agree with that, Dr. Mathis? That was just some random person. So I don't know their qualifications. Um, I think they have a twisted view of the rules of society because they've accepted an alternate rules of behavior. Mm -hmm. So twisted in that regard, yeah. Um, Psychopaths don't have any rules. They just, you know, the only rules are I kill when I feel like it, and if I don't feel like it, even though you might be my type, you, you get a free get out. You get a get out of jail free card today. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So, also, I wanted to note for our listeners, just for the sake of brevity, we probably will use the term serial killer for most of the people we're talking about, but. Technically, we could also mean somebody who rapes, tortures, abuses, or otherwise in some way kills their victims. These are all interchangeable. Just I don't want to take all night naming all the different kinds of people. So just assume I mean whichever ones it's about. Okay, so here's the questions for you. And we did get into pieces of this earlier. So some of this you don't have to repeat if you've mentioned it. But um, the two questions I have in any particular order are do all antisocials exhibit serial killer, rapist, or torture behaviors? And number two, are there other pathologies that could explain serial killers or other similar types, such as paranoia or schizophrenia? Okay, so there are a number of antisocials in our society who are not in jail, who are not in prison, and who don't um, serial kill, rape, or torture. <clears throat> they and so what happened was uh, probably about oh gosh I don't know how old this research is probably it's probably I don't know 30 years old maybe but a group of researchers 
from a couple of universities went and did studies to see if people in our society who hold fairly important roles in our society have any psychopathic, quote-unquote, tendencies. And they, did, they, they gave the hair psychopathy test to a bunch of folks, and the highest scores on the hair, and you'll love this, on the hair psychopathy test were CEOs of corporations, <laughs> right, because they essentially kill other people's, uh, you know, careers without compulsion, without any conscience whatsoever. They step on people on the way up. They ruin people's lives. They just don't care. They don't kill people, but in a sense they do. They don't kill people physically, but they kill people from a, you know, business, occupation, financial perspective. Uh, the other, so another group of people that scored really high on the hair psychopathy test were cardiovascular surgeons and neurosurgeons. They just use their cutting skills for wow. more socially appropriate. Yeah. And the other group of people that scored real high were people like bomb disposal squad people and uh, EMTs and those kind of folks who go in and, you know, get the bad guys, you know, in terms of the bomb disposal. All these folks have high sensation-seeking levels, which a lot of of the antisocials have. They're they're sensation seekers. So they'll go for high sensation-seeking stuff. They just do it in a way, in, in the case of the EMTs and the bomb disposal folks and the SWAT team folks, they just do it in service of society. So they they've converted, if you will, their antisocial tendencies into prosocial tendencies, but they still have the high hair <laughs> psychopathy scores. They've just con they've converted into more socially <laughs> amenable kinds of things. Right, which I think is really cool. Um and it's it's sort of like when I talk to my own folks about uh, my own creative use of my own personal pathology, meaning my compulsivities, where I've, you know, mm-hmm. gotten this plethora of, you know, letters after my name and all these, uh, you know, useless information that really nobody gives two flying flips about except some of the people that see me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I could sit there and, you know, clean my kitchen 14 times and count the cracks of the wall and the the dust particles on the toilet seat, or I can, when I get triggered with my compulsivity, I can get more degrees and learn more stuff about things like serial killers and speakers <laughs> on amplifiers and, you know, pickups on guitars. And so these guys have done the same thing. It's just creative use of their own personal pathology. Not so much in the CEO department, but uh, the other two groups of folks for sure. So yeah, the answer is there's a lot of quote unquote antisocials out there. They don't they're not antisocial because they're not doing antisocial things, but they have psychopathy uh, tendencies. They just convert them and use them for the public good. So are there other pathologies that could explain serial killers? Um, most delusional disordered folks, which is what paranoia used to be called, most delusional oh. disordered folks and schizophrenics are not dangerous. Now, the only time that you'll see those folks as dangerous is if they have delusions of like, oh, my God, it's an alien from another planet who's walking inside a human body who is using that human body to convert other people to alien ways of life and to absorb them into the cosmos or whatever, and I have to kill that person to keep them from doing it, that kind of thing. Or they're a 
they're a dead person that's been reanimated. They're really a demon in disguise. I'm going to kill the demon before they take a bunch of souls to hell. So they're not really, you know, they're not sociopaths. They're crazy. There's a difference. Um, <laughs> some of your antisocials also have paranoid schizophrenia, like Charles Manson, for example. But yeah. he also has a lot of sociopathic tendencies, and he's also crazy like a fox. So it, he's a very interesting character um, in that regard. So, oh, but yeah. in general, most schizophrenics are not dangerous. Most delusional disordered people are not dangerous, except to themselves. Uh, some quote unquote psychopaths or sociopaths, you know, people who are high on the hair psychopathy scale, may or may not be dangerous, depending on what their profession is. <laughs> you know, uh, I wouldn't oh, want to work yeah. for one. Right? I wouldn't That's want to true. work for one. Uh, even a, a neurosurgeon, I'd be kind of careful because that, you know, when is that person going to decide that I'm not doing a good enough job and that person's not going to pay me? And they're going to justify it because I'm not doing a good enough job according to their stuff and they feel justified firing me or not or whatever. So I would have a hard time trusting that kind of person. But I have to say, in all fairness, my hat's off to those folks who can take their stuff and uh, morph it into something that's much more you know, beneficial to themselves and society. So I think that's a cool deal. Wow. Okay, good. I'm glad I asked because I really wasn't clear on that, and I'm sure some of our listeners appreciate the clarity. So was there anything else that you want to add about defining antisocials before we move on? No, I'm good, thanks. Okie dokie. All right, so next section, well-known fictional and real-life antisocials in media, entertainment, and the news. Um, I just have a few names here. It's not a grand discussion, but I'm just pulling out a few names as examples of various kinds of people that we're talking about. Um, and we've done a show before on romanticizing this sort of thing in fiction, but tonight I'm kind of making the point that we not only do this with Hollywood definitions and characters, but we do it with real life people too. Charles Manson's one of the best examples. You know, he had groupies up until the end. And oh, speaking of which, we are actually going to in the next paragraph discuss a particular thing that he used to do called Crazy Charlie. I'm gonna, let me go ahead and open this uh, paragraph up for you guys. So this is the list of the real life antisocials, and it's alphabetical by first name. So Charlie is first. Um, Cult leader, for those of you who don't know, I've actually come to realize that um, I am of an age where things like this are not in necessarily in common knowledge anymore. Um, he, It says he killed five people, but that's technically not true, as Dr. Mathis mentioned earlier. What Charlie got in trouble for was putting other people up to it, because he definitely was exhibiting not only cult leader behaviors, but... You know, he was plotting these things out. So there was premeditation, even if he didn't execute it. Um, one of the things that he said to people that I pulled out here, because I didn't want to get in a long discussion about each name, but I thought this was interesting and kind of, it, it makes an interesting example of antisocial behavior that's not always that common. So Charlie said to his followers at one point, so he had spent a lot of his adult life and some of his juvenile life in prison. He had a really screwed up, up upbringing. So, you know, he started out of the gate kind of wonky. And he wanted to explain to the others, being his followers, 
what he planned to do if he ever was ever put behind bars again, which of course he was. Um, this is a quote from one of his followers. Charlie said that if he was in jail for a few days or even for years, he'd start acting like, quote, crazy Charlie, being strange and not making sense until the authorities got so frustrated with him they just let him go. Former Manson family member Leslie Van Houten recalled in a 2013 interview while serving her life sentence in a California women's prison. She was one of the followers that committed these five killings. Um, so, and the other thing she said is, but he told us we shouldn't believe it because it was just an act he'd put on as long as he had to. And of a lot of people on this list, Charlie was definitely the master of turning that switch on and off again, because if you listen to some of his interviews, he is nuttier than a poop house rat and he can just stop and he knows the difference and the difference is a tool to him. And that's kind of – actually, I got a question. As far as Manson goes, would you say that he was more of a psychopath or a sociopath? Because he kind of had his own rule system. Yeah, but sociopaths don't make up the rules. They follow the rules of other sociopathic organizations. <laughs> he was gotcha. definitely a psychopath. Okay. okay. Good. You know, yeah, I they don't make the rules. They clear. just follow them. They're not really responsible because they're just following the orders of the mafia don. <laughs> okay, gotcha. All right, so Charles Manson is one of the most well-known real-life uh, antisocials of whatever flavor that he is. Actually, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but at one point in time back in the early 90s, a uh, friend of a friend was involved in a punk rock band here in D.C., and they did a New Year's Eve show downtown. And through a long series of events that I'm not going to tell you right now so that you know, we're pushed for time, um, I ended up help making a tux for him to wear to the concert. And it was handmade, and it had silk screened on it, that famous picture of Manson's eyes. You know, that's kind of a, a long stripe of just his eyes. And they, these were silk screened all over the tucks and the pants and everything. And it was really disturbing. <laughs> but uh, that was that was kind of fun to make anyway. Um, he ended up ripping it during the show. So it was a one-shot deal. But that's my little Charles Manson story. Um, so anyway, you know, basically I just wanted to point out that Manson was a master of that putting that on like a mask and being completely believable and then stopping. But people were never really quite sure just whether he realized that it's scaring people and he's completely in control of it or whether he just thinks he is. I don't know. It's hard to tell with him because he's never not been like that. He was like that since he was a kid. So moving along to some other names that are pretty well known. Um, I left some out that are not as well known. So the next one is Ed Gain, who's the, the man whose macabre and horrific acts helped inspire the movie Psycho, there's also a TV show now, uh, Silence of the Lambs, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, amongst other things that he did is he kept dead body parts in his home for several years. Some he went and dug up. He unearthed them. Some of them were from victims that he tortured and killed. He was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia and later convicted of a couple of cases against him 
but he was declared insane and he died in an institution. And yeah, there are Ed many, Gein many. Made a, uh, Ed Gein made a, a, a body man, a body suit for himself out of female flesh and would go out in the howl of the full moon and all kinds. The guy was very crazy. I have a lot of stories I could tell you about Ed Gein. No, you know, I thought crazy was a legal term. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, he was, yeah, he was, as as Mel Brooks would say, he was NVTS nuts. <laughs> NVTS, oh, ha, okay, got it. Yeah, but, sure, yeah, he, uh, he was, history of the world, yeah. Right, yeah, he was the influence for several fictional antisocials that we'll talk about in a bit, oh, yeah. you know, pieces of things oh, he did, absolutely. not, not. Not body parts pieces, but certain particular acts he was well known for got incorporated into different antisocials in media, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, yeah, he was one also. Of the old... yeah, he was the Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the yeah. Leatherface character. That's where they got the Leatherface from. Was Ed Gein making himself a full body suit, uh, a female body suit, which is where the the Silence of the Lambs character was making himself yeah, a woman well, body. It's the same. Yeah, all yeah. that comes from Ed Gein. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay, the next one, one of the oldest that we know of, uh, Jack the Ripper. Um, not, not Well, it, interesting, I was going to say he's not an American, but there are some theories that he might have been, because as some of you may know, we never did identify him. There's been theories... And some of them have a little meat on them, but we've never conclusively proven. So he might have been an American, but we don't know. But anyway, he was a serial killer of prostitutes, um, never identified around 1888 in Whitechapel area of London. And he's definitely very well known because he was one of the first cases that we've been made aware of in the media. Um, next, another icon, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. So he was a serial killer and rapist of mostly young men of color and not just African-American, but several different ethnicities, uh, roughly operating between 79 to 91. Um, many of his later murders involved, uh, and here comes the gross part to go get a drink if you're not into that, um, involved necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts, typically all or part of the skeleton of his victims. And by the way, he was murdered in prison by one of his fellow inmates. Uh, current theory seems to be it partly had something to do with some of the young men because he killed a lot of minors. And, you know, if you do bad things to kids in prison, there are certain prisons and certain populations that will off you if that's your charge. They just don't. There's a code about it. I don't really know why, but that that's a thing. Um, next one on the list, John Wayne Gacy, another well-known name. Uh, started in 78. Uh, his uh, activities of choice, shall we say, murder, rape, and torture. He murdered over 30 people, and when he was caught, he had over... 29 bodies, under, it was basically under his house for a long time. His ex-wife used to complain about the smell, and he used to tell her that it was uh, mildew or something nasty from the plumbing going on. Uh, but he had the bodies of 29 boys and teenagers that he had raped and murdered and just kept them under the house in the crawl space until somehow he got busted. And then one of the last ones on the real 
life list, Ted Bundy, Theodore Robert Bundy, uh, operated mostly from 74 to 78. Um, He was a serial killer and rapist, uh, uh, convicted of over 28 murders, although technically they suspect he's committed easily over 100. They just don't have proof. So those are real-life examples. And now here are some fairly well-known fictional antisocials, and these are from TV, film, books, music, etc. Um, first one, again, these are in alphabetical order, so this is how it goes. Christopher Pallant, a lot of people may not know his name, but if you follow the TV show Bones, um, he is a very prominent antisocial in there, and, and he's a genius on top of it. Not all antisocials are abnormally smart. He is smart like smarter than Dr. Brennan, smarter than the FBI, smarter than most people in Mensa. He basically hacked his way into completely disappearing with a whole new identity in a country from where he could not be extradited. And there's a whole cat and mouse theme in that show from a few seasons in, I want to say around season nine or 10, um, because he gets obsessed with the main character. But super genius, super, super evil, super smart. And that's Christopher Pallant. Next one, fairly well-known, Dexter Morgan from the TV show Dexter. And while he goes about his daily life as a forensic scientist for the Miami police, trying to act normal, he's also conducting research for his night job as a vigilante serial killer. His basic jam was, it's okay because I'm killing bad guys. So I'm doing a public service that they won't allow you to do, but I'm helping. And I actually have not watched the original show. It wasn't on purpose. It's just I have 101 things on my queue to get caught up on. And Dexter's one of them, and I haven't gotten there yet, but I will eventually. And as Dr. Mathis mentions, they're doing a reboot of some kind. Um, I don't really know the details, but that might prove interesting. And I hope that they give it the most correct antisocials treatment that they possibly can. Uh, Another well-known name. Hannibal Lecter from the TV show Hannibal and Silence of the Lambs and really all but Manhunter in that series about all the the different um, books in that series. Manhunter was done before Hopkins. They did it. And and I used to get a kick out of it because they had film of the original Union Station in D.C., which no longer looks like that at all. It's been completely renovated. So I like watching that scene because it's one of the few pictures we have of that, (laughs) which is kind of twisted in a way because the guy running across the street in that scene is about to get whacked. (laughs) All right. Other famous ones, uh, the Joker and Batman is definitely an antisocial. Lex Luthor from Superman. He's a different type of antisocial. He's not a serial killer, but he definitely has, I would suspect sociopathy. Um, he he doesn't necessarily do serial killer things, but he does a lot. Of, what you were saying earlier about the CEOs and that kind of destroying people. He, he is a manipulator up to and including resulting in someone's death, although he doesn't usually kill them. Now, I haven't finished the series yet, so maybe that changes. I don't know. And I guess it depends on where you see him. You know, Superman's been a TV show several times. Um, in recent years, when TV's gotten a little rougher, they've gotten a little more comic-like about the portrayal of him. 
Um, another iconic one, Norman Bates from Bates Motel TV show, and obviously the original Psycho and the first three movies after that. I can't remember if he was in four. I think he was. And then last but not least, um, this is a kind of a fun, interesting character, but not everybody knows about him. It. It's kind of a cult following almost. Um, from the movie American Psycho, uh, the character Patrick Bateman that was played by Christian Bale. Now, that portrayal is deliberately somewhat satiric because it's sort of an indictment of 80s culture, but he definitely is a wacko, although they have a little fun with it. It's almost like this show Total Recall in that towards the end, you're never really quite sure whether any of that happened or not. It's completely outrageous, but it might be a psychotic breakdown, and I don't think we ever find out. That That's part of the fun of the movie. All right, so I just wanted to give you guys a roster. I don't have anything really extensive to say about them, and we're actually getting short of time, so that's probably good. I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's any prominent names you'd like to add or if there's any commentary you want to give on the list I put out there. Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes. That that's totally fair. In fact, you know what? I'm gonna I'm just gonna write him on the end of the list. So I don't forget. I know I spelled it wrong. I'll fix it later. <laughs> you can't see anyway. Just pretend I spelled it right. All right. So the next uh section we're gonna talk about is what is the psychological appeal of these figures? And primarily I have an article from history dot com which has some things on serial killers. Um, there are various ones in the article. I've kind of explained why is this on history.com of all places, because it, it is about the history of some of these people. And the article was updated in 2018. It's from 2017 by David Schmid, and it's why Americans are so fascinated by serial killers. And I'm going to try to zip through this. A lot of it's just background, but, you know, so you guys can have an understanding of this. So one of the key moments that kind of enters into our current fascination on five Oscars in 92, without wanting to minimize the difference between celebrating fictional and real-life serial killers, the impact of silence demonstrates vividly the American obsession with serial murder which by the 1990s had developed to a point where the serial killer had become a dominant presence in our popular culture, a figure that inspired not only fear and disgust, but also a mixture of fascination and even a twisted kind of identification for some. So how did this extraordinary situation come to pass? And what they mean is, you know, how did we end up being so fascinated? So as with the history of serial murder as a whole, American engagement with the subject was in many ways inaugurated by the Jack the Ripper murders that took place in the Whitechapel District of London, England, in 1888. Interest in the murders was intense, and there was even speculation in both newspapers and popular culture genres, such as dime novels and crime fiction, that the Ripper could be American. When the crime of crimes of H. H. Holmes, who had murdered an unknown number of people in a quote murder castle, this is a real person, not a character. In a murder castle he built in Chicago came to light in 1894, it seemed that America had its very own version of Jack the Ripper. 
The fact that the Hearst newspapers paid Holmes $10,000 in 1894, an extraordinary sum at the time for his confession, testifies to the immense public interest in the case. Even so, the dominant reaction to such crimes among members of the American public continue to be horror and incomprehension rather than fascination. Why? Partly because the American public lacked an adequate framework with which to make sense of such crimes. But thanks to the FBI, such a framework would emerge in the 1980s. And that's when the American fascination with serial killers exploded. Although the term serial murder has been around since the 1960s, it was not used with any regularity until the FBI took it up in the 1970s. And even then, the term was used primarily in law enforcement circles rather than in the mass media. This would all change in October 1983 when the Justice Department held a news conference to discuss research the FBI had been conducting into serial murder for several years. According to the FBI, at any given moment, there were dozens of active serial killers at large in the United States who were responsible for thousands of deaths a year. With the benefit of hindsight, it's clear that the scale and incidence of serial murder were grossly exaggerated during this period. It was and remains today a statistically insignificant crime. But why, would the, why exactly was the American public so receptive to what they were being told about serial murder? Because they now had a term to describe the crime and a face to put to the crime, Ted Bundy. You know, his era of prominence was right around this time. Bundy, who had been convicted and sentenced to death in Florida in 79, quickly became the poster boy for serial murder. Not only because of the number and severity of his crimes, he confessed to 30 murders, but was suspected of killing more than 100 women in several states over a number of years. But also because, on the surface, he, seems to, he seemed to personify the American ideal. He was handsome, charming, educated, and even had political aspirations. The disconnect between appearance and reality came to be seen as a defining trait of serial killers and is one of the main reasons Americans find them so fascinating. But another reason why serial killers such as Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and others inspired fascination rather than simply fear and disgust is because of the frame in which they were presented to the public. From the beginning of the serial murder panic of the 1980s, law enforcement in general and the FBI in particular, were presented as being in control of the problem. Although the, uh, alongside the iconic figure of the serial killer emerged the equally influential figure of the FBI profiler, or, quote, mind hunter, uniquely equipped to deal with the threat posed by these vicious and mysterious criminals. Today, the most well-known examples of the profiler figure can be found in TV shows, such as Criminal Minds, but in the 1980s, Thomas Harris, um, author of Silence of the Lambs and all those related books, uh, was largely responsible for popularizing the iconic Mindhunter. The character of Jack Crawford, Clary Starling's boss in Silence of the Lambs, was inspired by John Douglas and Robert Ressler, R-E-S-S-L-E-R, real-life members of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit. It's easier to understand why some serial killers could be presented as sympathetic figures by the media, including the cultured and urbane Hannibal Lecter, 
who escapes by the end of silence, unlike the crude and unsophisticated Buffalo Bill. That was the guy that was wearing the women's skin. In the same vein, the eponymous star of the long-running series Dexter justifies his homicidal tendencies by only killing other serial killers and in doing so make it safe for the viewer to identify with him. Even so, it is difficult to explain some of the more extreme examples of our fascination of serial murder, such as murderabilia, you know, memorabilia, which refers to the online sale of artwork, letters, and a range of other personal items from incarcerated serial killers. In a culture defined by an understanding of celebrity that emphasizes visibility rather than meritocracy as the precondition for fame. In other words, if you hear about them, that's a celebrity, not if you hear about them for doing anything useful or good or interesting. Um, serial killers like Bundy, Lex, Lecter, and Dexter have become the biggest stars of all, instantly recognized by the vast majority of Americans. Our fascination with serial murder provides us with a funhouse mirror through which we can glimpse distorted but still accurate reflections of our fears, dreams, and values. And here's a couple more Quora quotes in a discussion about why we glorify antisocials. And these are also from 2016, like the other ones. Uh, first one, I have heard that it has to do with the lack of emotion representing a form of strength. Neurotypical people are ruled by emotion, and emotion comes with a lot of negative experiences. They view the psychopath and the lack of emotion as an inner strength that the neurotypical person lacks. They believe that no matter what happens, a psychopath would not care. They never get their hearts broken. They are never victims of emotional terrorism. If someone threatens a neurotypical's family, it's a strong negotiation tactic, whereas it is the opinion of the masses that the psychopath would not care. And this was the layperson's opinion in the conversation. Uh, another quote from the same thread I think people seek to understand them. They're perceived as powerful and their emotional coldness and advantage and possibly even power over us. If we understand it, maybe we won't fall for it. Parenthetically, this rarely helps. And at this point, I'm going to pause and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, see if there's anything you'd like to add before we continue. No, I'm good. Thanks. All righty. Last section, risks and pitfalls. And why and how you should stop this behavior. And by this behavior, as I mentioned earlier, I mean the glorification and the worship of the antisocial. There are many reasons why getting too obsessed or romanticized with serial killers is a bad idea and possibly unsafe in many aspects. One could get sucked up into their delusions or form some of their own and get lost in that fantasy world. Some serial killers may reciprocate to the point of seeking out and stalking, toying with or even killing their fans, quote-unquote fans. Some people are even sexually aroused by someone they know having committed these acts. Hybristophilia, a.k.a. Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, is a sexual interest in and attraction to those who commit crimes, not necessarily just antisocials that are killers, but... Um, this is one way in which it could come out. It's a paraphilia in which sexual arousal, facilitation, and attainment of orgasm are responsive to and contingent upon being with a partner known to have committed a crime. 
Many high-profile criminals, particularly those who have committed atrocious crimes, receive, quote, fan mail in prison that is sometimes amorous or sexual, presumably as a result of this phenomenon. In some cases, admirers of these criminals have gone on to marry the object of their affections in prison. The cause is still unknown, but some speculation includes self-esteem issues, either no relationship ambition or being powerful enough to change a, quote, broken person, seeking the same limelight these criminals get, or possibly that a locked-up partner is low-maintenance and low-responsibility fantasy. You know, you don't have to have dinner on the table when somebody's not coming home from work, that sort of thing. And quick question for you at this point, Dr. Mathis. Are all serial killers also dominant in personality? Is that always hand-in-hand? No. Uh, Particularly if you have groups of serial killers, if you have several people committing the act, you usually have one person driving the engine, but sometimes the one person is manipulating the other person to kill the, the you know like the snipers in Washington for example uh, Washington oh, yeah. DC All right and you had one guy who was clearly not dominant uh, the guys that were going to kidnap the people uh, the kidnap the women or make advice kidnap the women in the bunker one was this young Asian male and uh, there was no way any of these people were dominant. They just fell under another dominant person who convinced them to go along with it, and they went along with it and did stuff. So usually the driving force person if in a diet or triad is dominant, but sometimes people get swept up in it, and they, they become serial killers themselves, and they're not necessarily dominant. They're followers of a dominant. Okay. All right, that makes sense. All right, continuing on. Criminologist Dr. Scott Bond, B-O-N-N, says the appeal of consuming true crime media is simple. Serial killers excite and enthrall people, much like traffic accidents, train wrecks, or natural disasters. People don't want to look, but they can't look away. Dr. Bond likens true crime to the horror genre. They can be considered adult scary stories. Many of us like to be scared. We experience an adrenaline and endorphin rush as a result of our fear, but we want to obtain that fear in a controlled way that is not actually dangerous. Catharsis is the main draw of these genres, and many people refer to their obsession with true crime as a, quote, guilty pleasure. The formulaic programming of true crime media aids in this mechanism. Typically, details of the crime draw us in and engage us in fear but a resolution comes at the end of the program, making us all feel safe again. Part of the specific appeal of serial killers over other types of true crime, however, has to do with how unfathomable their actions are to the general public. In his Psychology Today blog, Dr. Bond says, serial killers are so extreme in their brutality and so seemingly unnatural in their behavior that society is riveted by them. Many people are morbidly drawn to the violence of serial killers because they cannot comprehend their actions, but feel compelled to. The incomprehensibility of their crimes makes serial killers seem enigmatic in the minds of the public. The fascination with serial killers is based in part on a need to understand why anybody would do such horrible things to other people who generally are complete strangers to them. End quote. Humans naturally try to make sense of and understand their world 
but serial killers fall outside of our logical understandings of motivation. Antisocials know how to employ various psychological manipulations to appear harmless to draw people closer. This is one of the biggest dangers of getting too close to them in real life. And I'm going to check in with you real quick, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything you want to add here. And that's also the moniker of any successful cluster B personality disorders. They have great curve appeal. That's an interesting way to put it. I don't think we're trying to buy well, we any do. of them, but yeah. Yeah, yeah they, no, they I, I thought that was cute. Right, until you get to know them a little bit. And with some of them, it's a little too late once you realize, wait a minute, this dress doesn't fit. <laughs> you <know>? Oh, boy. <laughs> Especially if it's made out of flesh. Oh, ooh. Yep, okay. yep. So in summary, we hope now that our listeners better understand our culture's fascination with serial killers and similar antisocial personalities. We hope you can form a detached interest without overly romanticizing the archetype or getting too involved in pop culture fantasies about such persons. So at this point, this concludes our show, our fascination with antisocials. Is there anything else that you want to add from anywhere in the show before we wrap up? No, except if you're playing a, a serial killer for Halloween, be careful you don't get caught up too much in the role. And I hope everybody has an awesome uh, holiday this weekend. All righty, cool. Um, on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. So we'll see you guys again in two weeks with a new topic for discussion on Wednesday, November 10th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. I also want to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Tomorrow night, Travel Itch Radio, Thursday, the 28th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Want to sample a paranormal experience or two this Halloween? There's no better place than one of the top 25 most haunted members of historic hotels of America. Hear all about these venerable properties which span both coasts, from Executive Vice President Larry Horowitz, when he visits Travel Itch Radio and talks about ghost sightings dating all the way back to the Revolutionary War, with award-winning host Dan Schlossberg and co-host Mary Ellen Nugent Lake. Larry will also discuss the spirit of a jilted bride, a ghostly maid called Mrs. Clean, a woman who committed suicide by locomotive after learning her husband died in wartime service, and spirits that pass through elevators, elevator doors without opening them. Even longtime Louisiana legend Huey Long lives on as a ghost in a Baton Rouge historic hotel. Okay, Saturday, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, and this is hosted on Streamlabs. You can get the link from the NDB Media Facebook page. Sunday the 31st on Halloween, spend Halloween with us, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This is my other show. I'm seeing another show on the side. Uh, this is a double header. The Fear the Walking Dead and World Beyond online viewing party, combining Season 7, Episode 3 of Fear, which is Breathe With Me, 
and season two, episode five of Walking Dead World Beyond, which is Quadrava. No, I'm saying this wrong. It's Q-U-A-T-E-R-V-O-I-S. And it is a word that basically means you're coming to this moment, like this defining moment where you may have to make a choice that's going to change your life. It's the best way I can explain it. So please join us online or on the air by phone for real-time discussion, updates, trivia, profiles on the cast and crew, and more. Uh, Next is Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega on the 1st of November, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. The Nightmare Hunter with Roger Noriega is moved to Tuesday evenings, 10 p.m. Eastern Time on StreamYard. And Tuesdays at 10 p.m. here on Blog Talk Radio, Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the terrific trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of TV. Please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have an awesome Halloween boo, and we will talk to you guys in two weeks. Good night. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.